goes back to your point is that you have to know yourself. What situation do you like to be in and what situation do you hate to be in? So if you know that from yourself, like the best part would be to experience those situations. So maybe try, if you work for some companies, you will actually get a feeling of that. But before you decide your investor career, if you answer the question, what do I want and when do I think I perform, it's much easier to pick the right route, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think for many of us, the, the truth is we have to, life is not a straight line and you're not going to figure it out uh, at first. And, and so maybe you have to go and walk a little bit in the wrong direction first to then adjust. But I think you should have the, the courage to adjust when you see like, this is not me. You know, and I, I'm not sure, I wouldn't advise anyone, go for your passion, go for your passion. I, I think passion is more than the outcome there than it is the input factor, right? I think you, you just have to do what, what you think you, 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 you're good in, you know well, you, of course, you know, like it somehow, you know, it should be a bit of tap dancing to work the buffer book, right, rather than, than, than finding it not interesting, but... You know, the, the more you know, the, the, the better you become. I think the, the output is passion, right? And you, you start to like it a lot. And certainly you need, you know, you need to like it enough, let's say, to, to go through those patches of difficulties. Alexander Stahl has used several decades to research and invest in commodities all over the world. In this episode, we discuss Alexander's passion for commodities, his investment philosophy, and why the next decade will be radically different from previous decades in commodities. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Vonheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Let me just start the episode in a funny place. Like, why do you mention avocados on your Twitter bio? What's like the thought behind it? Is it because you see so many avocado toasts all over the world? Or I know you have a a message behind avocados. So let's just start there. (laughs) Look, um, we are in this... uh climate debate, right? Um, And um, I shouldn't say debate because the IPCC has uh, decided that, uh, you know, if we increase um, 
global temperature by 1.5%. This is the budget we have in terms of CO2 to get there. And then um, we don't know um, whether call it human life changes as we know it because of climate change. And then if you assume 2% um, um, of degrees is, is makeable, then uh, it will change in this and this way and so on. And no one knows, of course, we cannot know these things, right? But um, so there are a lot of people. And then the European uh, Union, don't forget, created the climate law based on that. And most nations out there, um, uh, including China, committed, although some of these commitments are clearer and some of these commitments are not at all clear. But um, if you go to, to, the to the fine print, but what I'm trying to say here is, it really, people take what came out there very seriously and they want to help and contribute in their own way, which is fantastic because people are fantastic. I think on a, um, you know, most people out there, they really want to help. Well, the thing is, and that debate, I think, leaves a lot of people now with a very strong heart and a lot of passion, but it may not uh, uh, allow them to understand why we need fossil fuels, fossil fuels, because that's an important part of our modern life. It's actually what modern life is built on, hydrocarbons. And if everyone is so, um, you know, then I have a certain type in mind that you and I can see visually in front of us that is there and tries to be what I call a good doer and has a very strong opinion about this climate change and at the same time is enjoying her or his avocado toast. Right? And that's where it all becomes awkward because the avocado really needs a lot of fertilizer to be that beautiful avocado, not just a little crampy, little nothing avocado. And that avocado doesn't grow in Norway or in Switzerland. It actually comes from different places around the world that have the climate for it. And that means you have to transport it there. And then you have to harvest it and all these things you know, if you go through them, like, you know, I'm the kind of guy who likes to go through these numbers. And if you do these numbers, and I've done them now for, you know, something like 20 years, you just understand what the carbon footprint is of an avocado. And it's an enormous footprint. I mean, it's like the one fruit that if I be the good son of Europe, and I would say, okay, if we really want to do net zero, then sorry, the avocado is out of the supermarket. Eat something else, right? Go back to the local nutrition card that you have in Norway and that we had in Switzerland in the 50s because, you know, it wasn't normal to have a banana in, in Corpo Micro or whatever the supermarket is where you come from. So I think people take a lot for granted these days. And then at the same time, they have very strong feelings, opinions about another aspect of life and they want to go from A to B overnight immediately and that's a very dangerous thing if i can just ask what i try to do actually on twitter i think more than anything else of course i tweet about all sorts of things related to commodities but if anything in the future i could achieve 
it would be to find the right way to educate as many as educate sounds like oh I'm an educator. I don't want to. I just like to to get, bring it across so the people reflect and note more, be more conscious about what they are actually doing and what they are actually saying. And that often there is a wide gap in between. And, um, and if we can close some of that, then I think we, 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 we are in the right direction. And also uh, to think for themselves, because I think another thing that happens out there is that we all come this, from this strict educational system where we have to kind of go to school and you know from eight to five and then we have to go to high school and then we are in gymnasium and then we go to university and we're doing this and then you come out and then you work right but um, what happens there in the process is that many stop reading stop learning stop educating themselves and i think that's obviously I, i'm not quite sure about the generation now because they have such a different access to information than, uh, than I had, uh, you know, in the 90s, uh, you know, there wasn't much internet in 96 when I started in investment banking, right? There was one person had a, had a browser and we had to go there to that central computer. And then you would go there and there was nothing, right? You couldn't find anything on it anyway. You would go to some company website because you had to look something up and there was no information. Definitely. So, um, it was a very uh, non-digital world still in 96. And today, obviously, the access to information is completely different and so on. But there is the issue of fake news as well. And then some people get into the habit of just doing social media and so on. But, you know, the, the good old world of books, where a lot of people took a lot of time to explain the world. And... Um, you know, if you're, if you're into books like I am, then I would suggest to your audience to read this book. If you do nothing else in, for the rest of your life, but if you read that, you probably know more about this debate that is currently ongoing and that will, you know, massively form our lives for the next 30 years and anything else. You know, this Pimentel guy really understands it. Uh, it's a, almost a science book, but it's it's really really a good book, and um, I think you know if we can help people to understand a bit more that the sandwich doesn't come out of the fridge, but it actually means that we have to go through a whole value chain, you know, supply chain of uh, you know human action that involves a lot of hydrocarbons every single day and that system is very fragile and it was built starting with the invention of or the finding of oil first you know in the uh, late 19th century and then since we were able to create the the world that we have and if you go back a little bit to the numbers and see like wow you know when president kennedy kennedy was inaugurated um we only had what three and a half billion people and we are now close to eight, 7.9 billion people. Um, you know, the, the reason we can su support that growth of people is because we do, we have this modern way of doing things, meaning we use fertilizer that allows us to, to grow wheat, soybeans, um, corn, 
that uh, you know constitute the main uh, call it diet for for eighty percent of of all countries out there um, gives us the proteins that we need um, and without those we couldn't support the population we have I mean that's the kind of you know where it all should stop this debate because you know in a way what we are doing here by kind of making hydrocarbons the bad guys right when actually they provide the life that that we live um it's kind of a, a schizophrenic um very dangerous debate because um if tomorrow uh, you know the hydrocarbon industry. Take the uh, you know any anybody who produces natural gas. Say enough is enough. I don't want to be the bad guy. I'm actually the good guy here. And they would turn off the taps. This world would be within weeks in complete chaos. You know, and 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 especially the poor, the poorest of this world. And this is what concerns me so much. Yeah? In Europe, we can, we can, we are so, you know, although we, we consider ourselves maybe anti-fragile, I think we, we, you know, fragile, we, we, I think we are actually anti-fragile. We, we have such a robust system. Our cities were created, um, you know, before we even knew uh, hydrocarbons were there. And so everything we've done means we use very little of it, right? We consume a quarter of it uh, compared to the United States. The cities of which were built after um, we found hydrocarbons mostly, and therefore they are much bigger. You know, they, for everything you need, need a car, they have a completely different way of life. So Europe is actually in a very good spot, but yet we, we kind of strangle ourselves in a moment in a debate between climate crisis tomorrow, which then becomes, you know, um, a fixed data point. I'm going to come back to that in a moment because we have many of those in my life already, uh, which, are, by the way, remains an assumption. And um, the outcome of which, right, what does it mean when 2% plus is, is then really the world breaking down? And there are good books about that too. And then um, we have to, you know, okay, therefore we need to change our way of life of you know the industrial life on the hydrocarbon side and that may cause a food crisis but that food crisis is not in 30 years that's in 2023 next year so we have to be a little careful here and we i think we have to as people that like reading and are into those topics we have to kind of almost we have a duty to pass on as smart and as good as we can the knowledge we have to make everyone at least a bit more aware or help them to be more curious about these things, then, you know, we, we also come out of these 10 years of tech, everything tech, 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 right? We had the same boom between 96 and 2001. And so it seems to me that the world of molecules is completely left over, left behind. And the world of bits and bytes is, is in the middle of everyone's heart and mind. And everyone wants to be the next, create the next shopping app instead of, you know, when I tweet, I say, you know, are we short shopping apps or are we short fertilizer and wheat and, you know, corn that is actually going into your shopping 
And um, that 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 is, you know, the, if I would have said all these things two years ago, everyone would say, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Now we go through the process painfully. So I think it's going to be um, a really, it's going to be on in certain parts of the world, mainly for the poorest, you know, the Bangladesh, the African uh, uh, high population um, countries that also depend so highly on the, like Egypt depends so highly on, on imports from, from Russia and from uh, Ukraine. So this war, in addition to the hydrocarbon crisis that we already have, creates a perfect storm also in food. So it's, it's everywhere, wherever I look. And it makes me at times also very nervous, to be honest, because I see already now that the price behavior is dysfunctional in many parts of the commodities in the real life with the guys that do it, you know, the trading houses, and uh, they are all very concerned. And I think we should be too. And we have to be now very careful with our ongoing policies, in my view. But this is the perfect segue to a very big debate, especially it's often a debate in tech as well. Do we believe in that we can create abundance in energy and food just given that we have the right innovation and technology? Or do we, do we, uh, we believe that it's going to be, be a resource management play where we have these resources, we're not going to invent a new oil, let's say. So it's all about you know, spreading this energy as efficient as possible. Or do you believe that we have great discoveries which actually can create abundance on an energy level? Or is that just an impossible question to answer? Yeah, this is a, uh, probably a, a, a little bit out of my league, but I let me try and, 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 and say a couple of things that I feel comfortable to, to, to explain. So first of all, let's take the electrification of everything. The electrification problem of everything Technology, non-technology, it's chemistry. And in chemistry, because batteries are chemistry, lithium-ion battery is a chem chemical problem. And we are trying to solve chemical problems in battery, meaning making them more efficient, having a, a larger range for the car. And so we're, we're trying to do that now for about 30 years. And we're not making a lot of progress. So Moore's law, that applies to the semiconductor industry and that made everything uh, you know, that was computerized so much more powerful um, doesn't apply uh, in battery technology. That's going to be, and there are some very good informations out there. I mean, if you go on Volkswagen Power Day and you spend 90 minutes on that, you can learn a lot about batteries and it's, it's, it's nicely presented. It's a similar accent than I have, but I think people will understand it. And the point is, um, it's it's hard. It's really hard. So that, well, let's be humble about what we can and cannot do technology-wise, so to speak, in terms of the transition. But then it goes a step further. Then we go into the materials that we need for that. So the nickel and the lithium and the copper um, and the cobalt, um, um, that each have an important function in, in a battery. And, um, and those, um, while not scarce in Earth's crust, very scarce in terms of production, meaning 
Everyone, you know, do we know where the deposits are of copper today that we need to bring online in order to um, supply the additional demand that will come from the electrification of everything, not just cars, uh, windmills, um, you know, the, the solar panels and so on. They all need copper because copper is the amazing conductor of everything, right? It conducts best. The, or the best conductor of, of all the metals is obviously silver, but silver is, is so much more expensive than copper that it's, it's impossible uh, to substitute or, or to be used. And then the, the next best conductor is um, aluminium, but the aluminium in an industrial application has a lot of disadvantages. It's brittle, it doesn't like water, water reaction. So if you use those underground cables that uh, you know, the offshore uh, wind industry now needs, um, uh, and if you go to RBB, which you obviously know, it's a you know Swedish Swiss company. Um, they, you know they do everything uh, in you know when it comes to cables. If you go and talk to them, they really don't like to use aluminium because the maintenance part, maybe in 10, 20 years, which matters to the you know the call it the overall life perspective of 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 a, of a wind farm. It's very hard to, to do if you use aluminium. So there we could we could go into a lot of details, but believe me, no one wants those mines. So America, for instance, has three incredibly interesting large-scale projects for copper. None of them gets anywhere, right? There is a project called Pebble, which is in Alaska, which is run by a by the way listed company, Northern Dynasty. You can look it up. They are in a permitting loop now for 15 years. And when I say permitting loop, they don't make an inch of progress. Now, <clears throat> if you go and really go about the details as we, as this is exactly what I do and really look into these things, what's going on there and so on, it's actually shock, shocking what, you know, what kind of red tape there is, you know, lobbying there is to kill that project for no reasonable reason. And at the same time, we want that electrification, right? So, so, so what we are trying, to, you know, in what we put in law and what we are actually doing on the ground in these administrations, that couldn't be further apart. And so we have to make some decisions and say, look, either we want this electrification, which I have nothing against. I think that, you know, ele electric cars are cool. I bought my first Tesla in 2013. I think we should buy them. You know, why did, why did I buy them? Because I'm concerned about the supply of oil. I'm not, 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 not concerned about the demand of oil. I'm, I'm concerned about, you know, this tank, which I call Mother Earth at some point in a hundred years will not give us the hundred, one, 105, 110 million barrels we need. And so we need alternatives, right? So I'm all for that from, from a different angle than most people. Everyone thinks that we need to get rid of that diesel engine. I'm not worried about the diesel engine. I'm worried about where does the diesel come from in 50 years? And we're gonna have, by the way, the first diesel crisis this summer for your audience. If you don't believe that, you, you, we absolutely are going to have a diesel crisis this summer. I think we're gonna have curtailments in diesel. Imagine that in Europe. So we had it in the 70s. We're gonna have it this summer. 
So my point is, um, um, it's just that we have to become somehow as a, as citizens more aware of what is going on here and how contradictory um, this planet at the moment is in its behavior. So the net zero carbon law in the European constitution, which forces the entire car industry to electrify everything by law. So it's compliance driven, okay? And on the other side, no chance to bring on a major new mine in America, the not in my backyard syndrome, which means, so where does the copper come from? And that Volkswagen and BMW and Renault and um, Mercedes need in order to, Mercedes for instance wants to electrify its entire global fleet by 2030. Audi, according to uh, Volkswagen Group, wants to electrify all Audi cars by 2025. Now I say, that's fantastic. It's cool. These cars are actually, if you sit in the neutron, they're really cool. But I'm just saying, you know, um, I'm a resource investor and uh, I'm thinking like, you know, maybe the Fondquant family office wants to call me uh, uh, to, to negotiate for them one or two deals, takeoff deals, because I'm not quite sure where they want to get the, where they want to source the, the copper. I just, it, you know, there, there, there are big challenges coming. And um, they, those challenges, you know, at the moment we have called it fossil inflation, right? The inflation because of fossil fuels, but at, in parallel that we're going to have green inflation. So the inflation because of metals and mine, uh, minerals that we're not going to have sufficiently. And they're going to therefore uh, increase in price. and. You know, the second is probably what you feel uh, less directly because uh, the fossil um, fuel inflation you feel in your heating bill and you feel it in your, um, you know, at the pump when you fill up your car right now. But um, um, the mineral inflation you're going to feel when you pay the car because it's a, an investitionsgut, an investment good, right? Um, and um, and then um, when the you know your electrified car your e-tron needs about three times four times the amount of copper than your current car same size um, and the copper price doubles or triples in order to set the incentives to find each mine out there to have enough copper in the future. Um, you know, you're going to feel it too at some point. You're going to feel it less, but you're going to feel it too. And that comes in everywhere, wherever I look, it comes in now through the fertilizer, through the copper, through the nickel. We had just had the nickel short squeeze on top. Where, you know, wherever you look, wherever, and we are so deeply into the commodities. It, the commodities, as I like to say on Twitter, they are angry. And then come the Marco guys and say, no, 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 but you don't understand. You know, we are in a slight deflation because, you know, um, and they look at their CPI uh, components and think this is coming down. And I'm thinking, well, I have a different perspective because I do commodities and I, uh, one part, obviously, you know, they think about demand and demand 
becoming less. And that was true for the last 10 years whenever they saw a demand slowdown that mattered for commodity prices. But the thing is the supply side at the moment is hurting, you know, a multiple time more. You know, we just don't know where to, to bring on the supply on anything. On gas, European gas, huge problem, huge problem. Right? And we can go through the numbers for your audience if you want, but maybe we don't want to go through details here. We kind of want to keep the big picture. But so we can go through gas, we can go through oil. Huge problem now with Russia. That is set in stone, that's not going to change course. And we have the the, the metal side, the nickel, the copper, you know, the zinc, the lead. Um, um, all of those are hurting. The aluminium is hurting. You know, aluminium used to be like what I like to say, like shopping groceries was available, it was there, there was too much of it story. And so it was easy to buy, the, the price was always like just uh, marginally above the cost curve, you know, one third of them wouldn't earn any money in the cost curve, as you know, the commodity cost curve, so was the last guy doesn't make money. And so that came completely over, right? It's not like going to shop for groceries anymore. But it also Don't means that, that some of these commodities, like for instance, cobalt, 80% of it comes out of DRC. Yeah. Now, why do I say that? Um, um, uh, DRC is not Norway when it comes to uh, um, sourcing um, oil or gas, right? You have the rule of law. You have, um, you know, you probably as good as it gets out there in um, a service sector or brain power or new projects or you know, bringing it all in what we say in German, Einklang, like you, you know, take care of nature, you know, being responsible producers and so on. But the cobalt in DRC is a completely different game. And you know, if you pay attention to what Glencore did in the last 10 years, you know, they gave back the mines three times because they are so fed up with this constant local little little bitty corruption. The moment you have the cobalt, they don't let you export this and that. So it's it's a it's a very uh, tough process. But it also means that it's a very interesting time to have your job looking at this data all the time because the volatility and the rapid changes. But just one question, because we go so directly into the details, but just for people who don't even know how to separate a commodity from a non-commodity, can you just give the ABC lesson of what is the definition of a commodity? Because there's many things people maybe would think is a commodity that isn't recognized as a commodity, right? Well, uh, whatever comes out of Mother Earth, I would say, um, to keep it simple for your audience. And then that's obviously not quite true, because if we uh, transform natural gas, methane, into um, in the Harbour-Bosch principle, the, you know, call. Carl Bosch and Fritz Haber invented this process to, to um, create ammonia, which is the, the ingredient for fertilizer, one of them, right? And nitrogen is, is made out of ammonia. So that, that process, there is a industrial process behind. So, but it's still then when ammonia comes out, it's considered a commodity. So it's, um, now it's oil, you know, it, 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 it's a little dangerous to, to define it too precisely because the moment the real commodity guys are at the table, they say, no, but you don't understand. But, you know, what comes out of, of, of Mother Earth, I would say, and then is there one oil? No, there are hundreds of difference of oils, sour and sweet, and 
you know, uh, different uh, uh, classifications that matter to, to when you and I would work in a um, refinery, uh, we would look for this type and not that type kind of oil and so on. But it's a commodity, right? And, um, and what is, I think, important for, for your audience to understand is that commodities, unlike, um, unlike equities, um, they are what I call spot tests, right? They price at the margin uh, um, on the basis of the physical market. So the market, let's say, today needs 100 million of oil and can only find 100 million barrels right, of oil today, and it can only find 99. So we have to take one out of storage because we have some storage in this world. Then the price goes up slightly, right? This 1% that we don't find makes the price. And that is true for all commodities. So if we um, are in a deficit, prices go up, and that deficit is defined at the margin. I think that's the best I can explain it in, you know, in this format, but please follow us on Twitter. Where we, where we explain it in, in more detail at times. And then obviously an outlook matters for commodities too. So for instance, if you are in 2014, uh, where we had too much oil and we were in a surplus outlook for oil because of uh, what happened, what was going on in, in the industry that they call US shield drilling, then the price doesn't go up because even if you have a disruption for a short moment, everyone says, ah, don't worry about it. There is plenty to come. We are not short of it in our outlook. But if you then suddenly go into a period where there has been underinvestment, because obviously this extractive industry called commodities needs constant investment into bringing more out um, of it. And um, if you haven't invested enough, as we've done for the last six years, uh, almost in anything, in some cases for 10 years, the outlook suddenly becomes of a, um, um, a structural deficit. And then the behavior, the price behavior changes of commodities too. And then I would say the last layer that probably, you know, in what is commodities, but also what, mm -hmm. what makes the price of commodities, there, is a, there are technical aspects in there in the fiscal world, but also in the, in the physical world, but also in the financial world, that can cause, um, that can cause um, prices to, to move in extremes. So let's explain that quickly, because I think it's very simple for everyone to understand. So remember when we came into the summer 2020, um, and then we had too much oil because the world had to stay at home, couldn't use the car, had a completely different behavior for the first time ever, since we know oil. Now, at this, so here is the thing about oil. You cannot just um, you know, get rid of oil. When you produce it, you, you have to bring it into a system which is called storage. And um, if you run out of storage capacity, as we did, now you have a problem. Where do you put that additional barrel that you just produced? 
And so again, the price needs to work on that and needs to send a signal and say, stop producing, stop producing. So the price has to continue to go down to the marginal cost of each barrel produced in order to incentivize that the producer, you know, a great family like the Lundin family that runs this or the Roque family, Roque, I think you say, you know, to tell them, hey, stop producing. We, can't, we don't know where to put your barrels. And the price does that by going below the cost of production, the marginal cost of production, so not the entire upschreibung, you know, the depreciation of it and so on. And then um, people, um, you know, um, take decisions and, and stop those. And that didn't happen perfectly because it never happens perfectly, right? Because everyone thinks like, you know, there are hundreds of thousands of producers out there. And then the Lumni family said, well, you know, we are a $20 cost company, why don't we let the $50 cost company shut in their wells, right? And then they wait. Rightly so, I would do the same. And then that guy uh, somehow has to pay interest and says, no, but I can use this additional dollar that I made. It's very little, but I need it. And then he doesn't shut in, right? And that's exactly what happened into the summer. And at some point storage was full. And then there is a pricing, which is called in America, they call it WTI. Um, um, and we in Europe, we call it Brent. And then there are different uh, prices of, of oil with different names so on. But then over there in America, in WTI, there was a landlocked kind of pricing hub where there was a very storage facility and this additional barrel came in. Call it an additional barrel. It, it doesn't matter amounts and details here now, but this additional barrel comes in and no one can take it. So what happens? Well, behind that barrel is a contract, right? That needs to be fulfilled, and someone had so, so someone had to deliver that cont had to deliver that barrel and couldn't, or someone had to kind of, you know, where do, why, where do I bring this barrel? Where do I bring it in storage? And he couldn't because the, you know they call it the you know the, the the merchants, the traders said no, we don't have space for your barrel in our storage, and so the price collapsed below zero. And you could have helicoptered out that barrel, right? And said, no, I mean, let's see, uh, let's take that barrel and bring it somewhere else. But in that one moment, that's going back to the technical aspects that made the price of oil go below one, below zero, uh, despite this valuable barrel uh, for, for society. And, and so, so technical aspects in, in, in a specific moment um, can matter. We saw that in nickel two weeks ago too. Um, and without going into too much detail, but um, in, in general, commodities price of demand and supply. But they also price of the outlook of those commodities. Is there a structural oversupply or undersupply in the, in the world to come? And then there are the third, the, the third element is uh, call it a technical element, which can cause a lot of price volatility. And I think that's what you're going to see in the, in the months ahead where we might have the reverse of what we just had um, in, in, uh, in June 2020, where suddenly someone needs the barrel, but cannot find it. And then prices overshoot and have nothing to do with the production cost curve of that commodity, but just it overshoots because there is a contract obligation and it cannot be fulfilled and someone needs to close a position and cannot close it out. And then um, there, are, there is what, what I would call technically rational behavior.
but um, I expect more of that to come as we are in in um, you know short everything. Um, I mean, it's it's for me it's at the moment hard to think of a commodity that we have too much of. I don't know, but but even there I I would have to dig in deeper to to be absolutely sure. But it's just it's all linked, and uh, we are short of it, and we underinvested as a society for six ten years, and, and here we are. Do you have any favorite commodities or is it just as easy as you spend the most of your time on oil and gas because it's so big? Or do you have like small commodities you just love to follow and track? Or is it just like, I want to see everything all the time? Or do you have to focus on one commodity at a time? And how does the commodities interplay? Is there a great correlation all the time? Or is it like a pattern, a symmetry, or can it be all over the place at all costs? No, they all, they all have their life. It's like... First of all, I would say I love, I love all my children the same. <laughs> and then second, I would say, uh, of course, oil and gas uh, such a massive sector, much larger than all the others combined, um, um, obviously gives you more investment capital allocation opportunity. And that's why we spend the most time there. Uh, you know, we are stock pickers and hopefully long-term investors. And on that basis, um, it, it, it's a fantastic sector because with the same knowledge, you can look at 1,500 companies and uh, you can fall in love with some and not with others. You know, you have great management teams, great reservoirs out there that are misunderstood or not yet discovered by the market. And that's what we go for. So, uh, but I would say they all have their own life, but funny enough, they all have been uh similarly badly treated for the last 10 years um so you know i would say the last 10 years has seen the greatest shift ever from what i would call the real world into um you know the metaverse kind of world the tech world the, um, that, that shift has hurt every single commodity without a doubt. And we have to be honest too. I mean, on average, many um, capital investments in commodities are misrepresented and turn out to be uh, too optimistic and turn out to be bad capital allocation. Um, this was true for the entire US shale patch in the United States for, you know, between 2010 and 2020. They've lost an enormous amount of, of shareholder value um, through good money after bad for, for, for literally 11 years. And, and so people were fed up to even look at it. But um, so here we are. Given, given that you invest in commodities and try to find great companies, can we just go one sector abroad? And, and if you look at it as an, as an investor, could you also just be an asset allocation play on the different commodities that now we're bullish on oil and we're short on nickels, et cetera? What's the difference between you know having an asset allocation mindset versus a stock picking mindset? Because you could maybe do both, but it has different trade-offs, right? Yeah, you you should do both, right? You should you should not just um, it's um, what what we do is look. I started my career um, um, firstly a little bit in investment banking, and then um, um, 
went operational and then went back into private equity and public equity capital allocation. And so a total of 25 years and about at least 12 in capital allocation. And um, why do I say that? Because in private equity, you come from a very strong, let's look at the micro perspective. And you focus on this and what can we improve and how can we make this flower beautiful? And that is pretty much what I learned a lot, and uh, I like that too. Uh, as you know, in Petrotal, we are uh, in that situation now where I totally love our position, but I see opportunity for improvement. Okay. Now, um, that's not enough. So in um, I took a sector, then obviously we understand that stick with oil for a moment, but we can absolutely talk about all sorts of others. And in fact, I'd love to talk about others. But um, in 17, we started to look at the, we always look at the sector of oil, but we started to see issues coming in the oil sector already. In 2018, we were convinced we have a supply issue to come here. And for many reasons, we published it. People want to go on Seeking Alpha. That's where we published the paper. And it was widely discussed and so on. Even came in the Financial Times. Okay, Because at that time, everyone was still very bearish oil. And, um, and then it turned out we were a little early, not the least because of this COVID. Fair enough. I mean, COVID changed the demand side. It was a demand shock that we that you, we have never seen, not, not, nothing close to it. In 2008, we lost something like a million barrels. Uh, the, the deepest recession the world has ever seen, um, uh, the, the great financial crisis. And in COVID, we lost something like, no one knows exactly, but about 22 million barrels from being restricted to move. So it was just a massive shock to the system and therefore caused a lot of damage to the sector once one more time. But anyway, already back in 18, we were rather bullish and were actually positioned that way. And then came 2018 Q4. Trump did a little trick there. Um, and, um, you know, in the geopolitics of oil, uh, in the discussion with Iran, and um, gave them something, I said to the Saudis, by the way, we need more oil, pump, pump, pump. You remember oil prices went up, went up back then. Then he gave the waiver to Iran, so therefore the, the Iran oil was also suddenly available, so suddenly the physical market wasn't so tight. And then Powell also increased interest rates to which I thought, so what, 25 basis points, but in this financial system that is highly leveraged, it matters. And then we had this massive collapse of oil in, from you know, 94 something to 50. Now positions, we had a fantastic year so far, then suddenly got hammered in November and certainly so in December. And I was like, wow, what am I doing here? You know, with my private equity stock picking thinking, you know, I need to, uh, I need to improve my game, right? I need to, I have a blind eye. And so we invested a lot of time into Marco. And um, rightly so, and not ourselves so much, but finding the right partners for us to advise us on Marco and on a daily basis. And that's what I do today. And, and so I'm extremely macro aware because I think it's important. 
At the same time, you need to be sector aware. You really need to understand the fundamentals of the sector and then you need to be company aware. And that combination, I think, makes for good allocation for over a period of time. And you can also uh, risk, uh, risk manage those positions then better than when, when you are macro unaware. Because the cycles or the mini the, the within cycles of a cycle can be so enormous that you want to manage that risk a bit. But also, just to add on that argument, you ha you have quoted uh, Charlie Munger in your investment letter in terms of you know the always the discussion about diversification versus just being passive, right? So, do you just want to say why you quoted him and how why you do that in terms of your investment letter? Yeah, look, uh, there are many styles out there, and uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I think if you charge a fee, you have to. You, I think you can only justify it if you if you add alpha, and if you cannot add alpha over time, you know, not one specific year, two specific years, but let's say six, seven, eight years, you have to provide it. Um, doesn't matter your style, and um, meaning alpha, the difference between uh, investing in an index like the S and P or the Norwegian or the Swiss SMI or something like that. And then uh, uh, your own selection of, of, of choosing. And, um, and what I think the main reason is why this is hard for most out there that are professionally in this business is, in my view, because they are diversified. When you own 25 stocks, I think it's hard to find 25 ideas, believe it or not, that are outstanding massively better than, you know, that are the next Google or the next this or next that. And that's just very hard. Uh, but I, th because the market is inefficient, but it's not that inefficient either. And, um, and the market is also narrative driven, moody, uh, can change its mind very quickly. So, so I think you need an edge in terms of, um, um, you know, what you really know, that, that what Charlie calls the circle of competence or the Buffett. And, uh, and I think we have that, right? We define those resources investing our circle of competence, not just, but mostly. And, um, and then you have to see something out of Stone Sea and then you're gonna go in there and then hopefully over five years, like in Petrotal, people start to realize, wow, that reservoir is completely misunderstood. This is not a 50 million reservoir, this is a 100 billion barrel reservoir. And that changes everything and that's where your offer comes from over five years. And, at the same time, however, you have to, um, you don't want to lose your clients in times of volatility when COVID hits. Uh, and that's, um, you know, uh, the other side of the business that you somehow have to manage to, you kind of have to keep them entertained because you, you, you know, we just don't know what the share price is going to do tomorrow or thereafter. I mean, I just don't, right? If, you know, don't underestimate, you can be in exactly the right idea. Like there was an English company called IOG, we were large in, and, and but there was one shareholder that was kind of became a forced seller. And then, you know, that shareholder has to sell and sell and sell. So that stock price is not going to go up. And these are important parts, of course, of your analysis. But what I'm saying is you don't always understand the timing of when, when such, a, you know, what I call a share overhang is in place or not. 
So there are many elements you need to coach and you need to keep at the same time your clients entertained. And, you know, believe me when I say, because I had a couple, um, you know, their clients often, you know, they seem to be completely in agreement with what you are going to do until <laughs> until you get to the moment of volatility when they may be not in agreement anymore. And um, um, so don't underestimate. If you can handle volatility, that doesn't mean your client can. Although they may say so, but I think that's that's why it's so important. Also, by the way, Charlie and, and, and Buffett say it all the time. You need to find a partnership with clients. If you just have clients, they expect you to perform and you expect them to pay your bills, that's not going to work out for the long term. I think that's going to be a very, you know, that's going to be a girlfriend, not a marriage. And um, and I think um, you somehow have to find clients on the other side that really deeply understand what you do and why, and then kind of you explain them true truthfully, right? Like very like Swiss, Norwegian, like no bullshit kind of this is what we do. And then they buy into that and then hopefully go on a journey together for the long term and you're successful. But if, um, you know, if, if, if you have to manage every corner, every quarter, like most, most guys on Wall Street, um, um, I think they, 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 this job is a nightmare. It's super interesting because I think, uh, I think you, you wrote it as well. Like when you find a case, you actually have like 10 year horizon on that case. But in that 10-year period... Red Bull right? should pay me, by the way. This is Red Bull. <laughs> They're also doing quite well. But giving that, you know, time is the biggest advantage to any investor. Straight to your point, it makes it so hard if you're just like going to allocate capital on behalf of clients you don't really know, right? And you don't determine the market day up and day, day down, right? So it seems okay. like... Yeah, exactly. You have, look, I, I think you, you need a close relationship with your clients or, you, or, or you're not going to have happy clients. My best, I have a, um, a lot of clients that used to work with me in Babcock and Brown in the private equity company, you know, in the software uh, world that I used to run the operational and so on in, 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 in all sorts of you know, kind of people that you picked up in the in the journey of your life, where we have a deep understanding of each other and we trust each other and they know that I'm hardworking and that I'm serious and I really look at these things in series. Um, those, those, those relationships work fantastically, right? When we, even if we have those uh, high volatility, which we, we had in, in 2000, right, at 2020, um, you know, I just told them, don't look at it. Don't. We didn't buy rubbish. We have a fantastic reservoir. You know, we, we, what I'd like to say to them, really like Mongo, right? We buy companies, not stocks. If you're in the stock buying business, I find it very hard. If you're in the company buying business, few things that you really understand and not pretend to understand, industrially kind of understand, and on top have a bit of a risk management layer, I think you're gonna be fine. It's not for everyone because we are, look, there are many styles, many ways to roll. Um, um, and I, I don't think mine is made for others, right? Um, that's me. 
I think everyone has to find out who they are and what they can do best. You know, some there are incredibly talented people out there also on Twitter, you know, high frequency traders or, you know, these quant guys. And they just don't like it. They, you know what they say on Twitter? They say, oh, let's not have risk over the weekend. And I'm thinking, what are they talking about? Right? But that's how they are. They like to have you know, uh, a daily thing. For me, that would be a nightmare because when do I read? When do I think? When do I study if I have to manage everything daily? Definitely. So how do you like to structure a day? Because when you have all the commodities to look at and you're trying to find very good cases, do you have a clear structure or do you feel like it's a bit serendipity, luck, you read something? You no, no, it, or do you no. have like a structure from A? No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't. Uh, I, I, but look, maybe that works too. This scuttlebutt thing that uh, is talked about in books uh, by Peter Lynch and so on. But look, I, I, uh, I have a, a, a rather structured approach. So um, first of all, I think you need routine. Routine, um, look, I, I used to play a lot of, I, I used to do all sorts of sports. And in some of them, I really wanted to be very good, right? And then I learned a lot about our brains and so on. And for instance, in golf, you don't get anywhere if you don't have routine in front of that shot. And that's a process that needs to be very clear in your brain in order to become a single handicap or scratch player. You, you, you never become that kind of player without a clear routine that you need. And, and I think in investing, it's the same. And there are many ways I think there to go to. My routine is, you know, for instance, I have dogs and I go and walk with those dogs for an hour, you know, that no one can take that away from me between 11 and 12. Sounds incredible boring life. I love it, right? Because we Swiss, <laughs> we Swiss have uh, the, this privilege, this enormous privilege of, you know, you live in Zurich, you go in the car two minutes later, you are in the most beautiful forest, right? In London, it takes you, I don't know, three hours to get there. And then you walk with your dogs, you come back. And that's my way of having my, clean, my, my brain consolidated, my thoughts, you know, my anxieties, my, my anything, right? My creativity comes out. So, that's one. I think you need routine. I think you need to wake up at a certain point and go to sleep to a certain point in a, in a, you know, in a routine-ish way in order to maximize uh, your output. I think you, you need to bring in, you need to come into this game with the right tool set. I mean, if you, you know, if you're slow in, if you don't know how to do certain things that you need to do, I mean, you cannot go to a ski race and you need to figure out how to put your skis on, right? It just doesn't work. So that thing you obviously need to bring to the game, but then uh, I think what I try and do is to have the least amount of meetings, the least, I mean, I literally try to avoid them at all. Um, I don't like to go to conference, I don't know. What I like to do is just to, to read and think and, 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 and go about these things of these companies that we know well um, on a daily basis and then if there is something that catches my eyes then I like to call them the company and ask them about it give you an example I don't like to be pitched by someone oh you know have you heard of Serica Energy maybe that's a good thing and so on and then they sell it to me and then I don't go about this freely anymore right so rather my approach then is, okay, I know Serica for a long time. We've been in there twice and, uh, and we re-entered the position. 
this UK gas play, and then uh, there is this angle about, uh, you know, a development that they do uh, that looks very interesting. And then I read and talk to some, you know, we work, we have a loose network of, of specialists, like I talked to a friend of mine, geologist, and say, what do you think? And, what, nah, nah, nah. and we go about this data, and then I co-manage. And then usually you have someone with me on the call that knows a lot more about these things than I do. I'm not a geologist. And then, and then we ask two or three or four questions in the most neutral possible way so that I get a feeling what it really can be. And then we take some assumptions on it and, and, and that's how we go about it. You know, if you, if you talk too much to managers, you know, the good ones, <laughs> they really know how to sell their company, right? And then you, you, you think in, in the States, you find a guy that tells you his reservoir is very bad, by the way. Oh, please, Alexander, we'd like you to know this reservoir just makes it right. But nevertheless, it's going to be, the stock's going to go. No. It's super so you have to have an ability to find these things out for yourself and, and to create the network. By the way, I don't think for that you need to have hundreds of employees. You need to have a network and access to people that like to help you. And then, you know, uh, um, or something. we pay also a lot of, of, of fees to external advice where we think now this is important. We need to understand that in detail and um, have an expert on the on this specific question and then we feel comfortable but, but isn't it that like the funniest part of being an investor because you have to have everything at play at the same time you need to be stubborn on something but also very flexible and adaptable and there's a big herd mentality and you don't know if, if the herd is right or is it wrong so you have to sort of be extremely good at separating noise from signal right maybe that's the hardest part and maybe you can't get that level until you have had enough experiences because it's easy to say that you're not going to be convinced by good management but maybe you're not conscious about that for the first 10 years in your career maybe you are because everybody can be sold to it's yeah, easy to, it's, it's easy to say that no one can sell me something but we all get sold to all day right all day long and victims of it too now um <laughs> Um, no, you bring up very, very powerful points. So first of all, I think the experience curve is something you need. I think if you're, you know, Buffett started himself in a, in a, a, a when he was extremely young, you know, he called something like 14 when he did his first investment. So, but Buffett is Buffett, right? He has an amazing brain and an amazing emotional uh, game he brings, uh, he brings to this. But um I don't think many of us are like him, but I think what, what you are saying here is I would like to take that to the, the emotional world of this job. And I think there you need to really have, you need to come to this game, whatever that age is, when you have a good understanding about yourself. Um, because I think that it's where the, when the emotions kick in, you know, when things go up and you become too excited or when things go down, you become too depressed and so on. That's, that shows me you cannot handle the emotional side of the business. Or you probably haven't done your homework at all or very little, right? And then the price uh, influences you so much 
that you assume the price is always right and therefore uh, you are wrong, right? And then you shouldn't be in that business at all, right? If you don't make the price your opportunity, but your problem, you, 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 should, you should not invest in, in publicly listed stuff. But that could make you a super investor in the private sector, right? Where you don't have these constant quotes every single day. But the emotional side, I, I, I think you have to understand who you are, what, what makes you tick on the emotional side. Uh, you know, read these, these uh, you know, Daniel Kahneman thinking fast and slow, these kind of things. Um, Dale Carnegie, uh, you know, the, the psychological side of the business, and then find out whether whether you are that person. And I, I think some people are just born with, with, with that. They are made for that and others are not. But that's super interesting because, yeah, are you on that side that you think you have to be sort of born with this to handle this up and down? Because if you lose clients money, right, like at least in my experience, like losing my own money doesn't hurt at all. If I believed in an idea. I'm like you. I'm like you. I, I find it much easier if, if I'm uh, positioned and I have volatility. I don't really I really don't mind it, but I mind it for my clients. It hurts, but I had to learn that. You have to, you have to kind of go through that. You have to go through it. And you know, some clients are gonna be angry with you too, although you've done a fantastic job, but, but you are just uh, positioned in a way that, uh, that doesn't show the rewards yet. And you know, you're right and it takes more time and, and you go through that process and it's painful. I find nothing funny about it, but it's, it comes with the territory. Or the, the alternative is, which uh, how I started on the, on the public side is, is try to have enough money so you can do it for yourself. You live a humble life and, and then you compound uh, what you have and, and you don't have clients, which I think is, is, is a very powerful setup. You know, to be in the client business is a very, you don't underestimate, to, to build a business where you have clients is also not the same as to allocate capital, right? You have to distinguish. There is a job of a good CIO that, that understands, that sees the research, that knows how to allocate, that does the portfolio side, which is, by the way, some argue also a different job, portfolio management versus research. But um, um, let's assume that's the same. So you combine that. But then there is the client side, the selling side, the schmoozing side, the entertaining side. And then there is, if you want, the CEO side where you have to make this a business. You have employees and everything needs to come together. But isn't that a perfect example? Because if you take Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger on one side and then you pair them up with, you know, the guys who have built Blackstone and BlackRock, even though there are investors at heart, it's a very different journey. It's like it's like two different totally. sports. That's like uh, mini golf and uh, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, scuba diving. It's just totally different. They, they, uh, the black Oak guy. I mean, uh, incredible was he what this Larry Fink has done, but um, that has nothing to do with what Buffett has done. You know, they, <laughs> I don't know how, more, how many trillions they run now, but I, and I have no idea how he created that. And I don't know, I have never met him, of course, and I, I cannot comment about it, but yeah. it's incredible. But it, I'm absolutely sure what he has done has nothing to do with what profit has done. 
Yeah, because just to add one concept, so I'm a person who really hate internal politics. So internal politics happens as soon as you get five to 10 people on board. And if you get 1000 people on board, it's like maybe half of your day is spent on internal politics, right? So just imagine building those companies like Blackstone and BlackRock, how much of that percentage has been internal politics, hiring, firing, you know, buying up companies, selling companies. While on the other side, you can actually maybe be an investor for, let's say, 50% of your time. And then the other 50% is clients, that, that stuff, right? But it's just so... And those are important questions. And you want to you wanna position yourself there where you feel most comfortable. And, and I would argue um, I have very little desire to go my shop, you know, from outside. Because I just, you know, I love clients. I love to have good relationship with clients, but I, I like harmony and I like an understanding and, and respect of each other. And if, if I realize that, uh, you know, I had clients before where I simply said, look, we are not made for each other. And there was no damage. Just one client once called me and said, by the way, you know, uh, for me personally, uh, the, the performance is 14% or, or 12% and for the for that specific year and, and for the for the company side of the business, it's 16%. And and then he wanted to go into all sorts of arguments about it. And I, I explained to him, I said, Yeah, but but you told me, you know, to to be careful here or this or that. So I kind of tailor-made the portfolio a bit for him and then. Yeah, underperformed a bit the, the company side and um, and I just realized in that discussion there was the wrong uh, arguments coming uh, coming out you know there was like the um, you know coolie politics and uh, and then uh, you know you're not made for the job and um, yeah so I'm, for me it's very important to um, have a, a loyal base and that I prefer it small than big uh, and having all these, you know, the bigger you are, the more different the clients will be and the more institutional the setup has to become and the more rules they're going to apply to you. Also this entire, you know, if you have a fund, we, we have managed, we have managed accounts for, for our clients. Right? If you have a fund and that's on the Luxembourg law, then there is a diversification rule that applies. And that's exactly, I think, one of the problems why it's so hard to perform. So I try to avoid that. Definitely. But I think these examples are great for people to think about because it goes back to your point is that you have to know yourself. What situation do you like to be in and what situation do you hate to be in? So if you know that from yourself, like the best part would be to experience those situations. So maybe try, if you work for some companies, you will actually get a feeling of that, but before you decide your investor career, if you answer the question, what do I want? And when do I think I perform? It's much easier to pick the right route, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think for many of us, the, the truth is we have to, uh, life is not a straight line and you're not going to figure it out uh, at first. And, and so maybe you have to go and walk a little bit in the wrong direction first to then adjust. But I think you should have to, the courage to adjust when you see like this is not me you know and I, i'm not sure i wouldn't advise anyone go for your passion go for your passion i i think passion is more than the outcome there than it is the input factor right i think you you just have to do what what you think you 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 you're good in you know well you 
of course, you know, like it somehow, you know, it should be a bit of tap dancing to work the buffer book, right, rather than, than, than finding it not interesting. But, you know, the, the more you know, the, the, the better you become. I think the, the output is passion, right? And you, you start to like it a lot. And certainly you need, you know, you need to like it enough, let's say, to, to go through those patches of difficulties. It's so true. And I also and think that you like, don't throw the towel on the first Kieselstein, we say in German, the first granule, a little thing on the, on your way. You know, oh, this is too complicated. That's, that's also not going to take you there. But, but I also think if, if you're just going to discuss the word passion, I think way too many people start off with what am I passionate about? But I think that's like a blind alley to start. Like you should start with what gives value to other people and track your way back and see if one of your passions aligned with giving value because you can be passionate about a lot of projects that there's not a lot a lot of willingness to pay for and then you run into a big problem because your passion doesn't get you paid and then you don't have to and then you get a terrible life because you get stress and you don't have money for your life right so it all adds up but i think maybe just start with a simple question what gives value to people and then you can work your way backwards yeah, although, uh, of course, but um, I, I think you'll find that uh, this is often not so easy to answer. I mean, if you and I say, okay, let's do something together and, you know, even start a small community on Twitter, it's not so easy to know what makes people tick and suddenly, you know, you, you think you do something or say something or help someone that is amazing. No one cares, right? And then you, do, you say something which is like... The, like, of course, right? Ammonia is, uh, has to do with food. And then that goes completely viral. And you think like, <laughs> what were you thinking? Yes, high natural gas prices is indeed the problem for food. Yes. Oh, you didn't know that. Okay. So here is the 20,000 retweets, right? Suddenly in one day, you go like, yeah, but the world is very unpredictable. So sometimes you don't know, but then you have to at least experiment, like you're saying now with the Twitter cases. So then it's all about doing the Jeff Bezos argument of, okay, let's run 10 experiments. And if two exper experiments goes very well, maybe there is a product here somewhere. Yeah. You know, the, the software guys these, get, these, these days, I think they, they, they are very, let's go out, let's try, let's see what works and then improve or close it down again and so on. So, but that's obviously a little hard, <laughs> you know, you cannot just, okay, let, let me try to do a hedge for it. Didn't work three weeks. No, so, um, but um, that's a very yeah, good I mean, it's, it's not, look, I, I think, I didn't think of becoming, uh, you know, exposed to, to public equities and call it, I'm a, call it for simplicity reason, I'm a hedge fund manager. I didn't see myself doing that when I was 25. I think the journey, uh, it cannot always be understood uh, exactly. And um, at some point, you know, you can also be in something which is actually very interesting and then you should probably stick there, although it doesn't make you like, uh, you know, it gives you that factor of, of making a lot more money, right? I think people are often also, you know, if you're just trying to make the most money, then, uh, uh, then I think this industry is not the right industry because I, I think it's much harder to make money here than people understand. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. No, if you, let, let me explain from a psychological side. Like, so, so what we do is we really understand the company, we invest in it, and then you know we are exposed, and then that share price goes against you because I don't know, Powell, Chairman Powell, in, uh, raises interest rates seventy five basis points instead of twenty five, which everyone expects. Okay, so the stock goes down on you. So now do you feel miserable because you? you just lost on, on in the book money you know if money matters too much to you i would almost argue you're probably not going to become a good capital allocator it's a very interesting uh, perspective and i think you I, I agree so much because like if you take the public markets like i don't know if there's research who can say this 100 but how much do you really know what drives the price because there has to be so many factors that there's impossible for you to know exactly what goes around. Look, uh, even even uh, we we long enough now in this business to 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 make comments about that. And in most cases, I uh, I didn't know what what moved the price. I give you an example. We were big in Song Offshore. Do you remember that company, which was taken out by by uh, was I going to send you our investment paper for you for your own amusement? But we took a long time to analyze it and so on and. And then um, we went in uh, and um, it moved down immediately 20% on us on some technical reason. Um, and then within a week or so, they corrected again. And I never really knew why. You know, then I called the broker and said, why this? And I, yeah, but you, you know, it's really hard even if you if you do this day in day out um, and the people the clients sometimes even call me which they shouldn't right and say why why has it moved now and I think uh, look at those price movements once a day or maybe twice a day max but maybe once a week but the reason we look at it is simply to say should we buy more when we like something very much and Pay total. We had this, um, you know, um, um, local protest, um, which means very little for NAV, right? If you if you NAV something, if you really do the model, I mean, uh, a twenty day protest has just no impact on your NAV over ten years, just none. And um, okay, so so then suddenly the price overreacted and went from you know thirty to sixteen in a week, and I. My God, what's going on here? And then we took opportunity of that and we bought more and more and more because I, I thought has to be that kind of news about the protest, right? And um, and then you go for it. But um, yeah, I, I look to, to understand why prices move and to kind of become a day trader. I think that's, um, you know, some people do it and I'm sure there are uh, successful people doing it out there. I haven't met them personally, but... I'm sure some, some know what they are doing, but I, I think that's, you know, if I shouldn't say, it, it wouldn't be for me. I mean, it would make my life miserable. I mean, that's the, like the, uh, I mean, obviously there, there are people great at anything in life. Like if someone can trade on like high frequency, like of course there are short people, but then it also comes to a matter of like, okay, Let's look at the time frame. Can we? What's the scenario? Can we simulate this in other worlds? So it just goes back and forth, right? So instead of like wasting time on on saying a day trader should exist or not, right? Maybe you should just 
try to find your edge and then excel at your edge. Exactly. That I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, I would argue a high-frequency trader is actually like a kind of a software engineer. He couldn't care less about the company. That I guarantee you. Right. And, um, and so if you are that and, and you know how it works, you know, I wouldn't moralize these things either. You know, are they good or bad for, for, for capital markets? I think whatever provides liquidity, I would argue, is good for markets. At the moment, in commodities, you see that we don't have enough liquidity. We don't have enough participation. And that's why prices move so extremely. And, and, and so, you know, sure. No, you have to you have to know who you are and then try and approach it from that end. But, but looking at commodities, because let's just give the listeners and audience like a sneak peek into your brain looking at commodities, because I, I took, uh, took down the uh, 2021 returns in commodities, and there's like this enormous spread, right? You have coal and crude oil, like definitely on top uh, with high returns, and then you have silver on the bottom, etc. How do you like in today, of course, you can change your opinion tomorrow. Let's be aware of that. This is not like, uh, um, how do you say, like uh, the correct answer at every every situation. But what are you looking at now that makes you really intrigued for 2022? Do you have like top five picks at all? Or is it too hard to call that in the no, yearly basis? No, it's not too hard to call. No, we can go through that. Um, oil uh, remains a top pick because, the, look, we have, a, let, let me start differently, what happened in the last three weeks, four weeks, uh, changes the commodity landscape in a big way. And that's the war. Russia invaded Ukraine um, and the West sanctioned uh, Russia for it in the most severe possible way. And that will be... Uh, uh, becoming more, not less, in my view, it, 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 you know, in the very short term, so there will be more sanction packages to come. Now, Iran was similarly sanctioned, swift sanction and, and, and other measures. And it lost 30% of GDP overnight. And I think for Russia, this will be a big deal along those lines. Now, why do I mention that in, in, in regards to commodities? Because Russia is a commodity powerhouse. And um, so Russia provides, um, you know, produces 10 million of the 10, 100 million oil uh, uh, per day, um, or I should say liquids. Um, but uh, Russia produces 10 million crude oil and, um, and some condensate per day and uh, exports about seven and a half of those. Not in the form of crude, five in the form of crude, but two and a half in the form of products or diesel. Coming to Europe, right? And, um, and that's seven and a half percent of this market. And I told you before earlier that commodities are pricing at the margin. You know, the last molecule that we have or don't have makes the price. And, um, and here we, we therefore have a massive uh, dislocation uh, in how commodities work. And on that basis, you can be absolutely sure that commodities, you know, oil needs a long, needs a, first of all, you know, not a peace agreement, it needs a sanction. Okay. And that's the, those are two very different things. So don't expect after in a peace agreement, which I hope in a couple of weeks, I don't know, uh, at some point we'll have a peace agreement. You know, it's not going to change anything for oil. 
because uh, although these uh, you know crude oil and gas uh, is technically uh, carved out of the sanction list people are self-sanctioning and in terms of how commodities are handled on a daily basis it nevertheless has a huge impact so letter of credits which is you know a form of financing that you need to ship a barrel from A to B, at the moment they don't clear, right? So if you want to bring in a, a, a barrel of, of Russian crude, uh, uh, and both counterparties need a letter of credit, the, the banks won't, won't clear those letters of credits, those barrels cannot unload. So you don't touch them. So, so it, the reality of, the, and that's just one little aspect I mentioned. So, so there is a lot that doesn't work at the moment, whether the sanction language says you can, can import or, or could is excluded or not excluded. So, and that's a big deal. And so we go on. And then um, Russia is, um, you know, 20% of nickel, of world nickel production. So it's a big deal there too. Now, the transportation system for nickel is different than is obviously for crude or gas. And we should come to gas in a moment. Uh, but nevertheless, we'll see whether that nickel easily finds its way to, to China. It will, but there will be disruption. There is a period now where the, 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 the value chains, the transportation side of a commodity business needs to readjust. And that's not a thing of a day or two. These things take months. And then, um, 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 we go to copper, uh, Russia is about four and a half percent of production, more of reserves, so it matters there too. Again, if it would be one percent in each, it would be a big deal. So we go to gas, um, it's a third of the European market, so the European market, which Norwegians, I'm sure that you know these numbers inside out, but the, the, the European market is called it a 500 BCM billion cubic meter market. And um, Russia is 150 BCM of that per annum. Either way, without Norway, we would be completely lost. So that let's have that very clear. Zanke. I mean, Norway is the lifeline of Europe at the moment. Um, and um, the 150 BCM will be very hard to replace, but that's the process we're in now. Those molecules flow through the pipes that are still on. There were three pipe systems and the fourth one that wanted to be added. So there was the North, North Stream, so German, English word combined, North Stream pipeline that transported into Germany from Russia. And then there is a pipe going, uh, the Yamal pipe. And those are the big ones I'm saying now. There are smaller ones that go the Yamal. And then there is, um, call it the Welke, um, uh, you know, line that goes into Austria, so to speak. And, these through main um, systems, pipeline systems, um, they still work and they still deliver uh, gas. But what, why is then the gas market so nervous? Because we don't know yeah, at any point in time, they could decide, hey, tomorrow you need to pay in ruble, which he announced two days ago. Or, hey, by the way, tomorrow we don't want it in ruble. You can also pay in gold. Well, uh, 150 BCM, you know, at, uh, at the moment, the price of, of gas in Europe is, what, 110 euro per megawatt hour. So 150 BCM is about 1.5 billion megawatt hours. So that you multiply, that's, that equals about $170 billion. 
per year. Balcony, how do you gonna pay that in gold? I don't know exactly the gold reserve numbers now, but <laughs> it's not gonna be so easy. Um, um, and then every year, right? And then you have to transport it, <laughs> right? You're not gonna do click. You have to have kind of a rail <laughs> shipping out of 70 billion uh, uh, gold, but uh, euro, uh, you know, that's dollars. And then you convert it into gold barrels and so on. So we could do that calculation quick, but you, you see it's all, it's all getting very rather totally, absurdly complicated, impossible. So, um, but Putin made the decision, you know, I always tweet like, you know, what European politicians, you know, the Schultz, Mr. Schultz, the Bundeskanzler of Germany, obviously he's very concerned, the Italian uh, Mario Draghi, of course, also. But my point is, you should be concerned because you actually have to get on with it because you don't know when the other side actually makes you force to abandon the Russian oil because they request you to either pay it in a way that you cannot, or he simply goes so ideological, he has to bring back the Soviet Union idea and so on. And so he turns off the gas as well. He hurts himself a lot, obviously, but he thinks he can do it. He obviously thought he can go into Ukraine and do that. And it turns out that's not so easy. So expect it. So we kind of, we, in my view, that's why the market is pricing gas so nervously, right? Nine, uh, 110 um, euro per megawatt hour, that translates for your audience. I think everyone understands barrels a little bit better, but that translates into what, $220 per barrel. But given this, okay. it's- Barrel of oil equivalent, right? But just given the situation where you sort of, I don't know, like, is this information, do you feel like from an investor standpoint, it's like already priced into the commodities and then you have to take a risk adjusted bet? Or is this like, do you feel it's not priced in at all? And there's huge asymmetry coming up now. There's you... huge asymmetry coming up. Um, so so the, the, I urge people to really uh, 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 don't anchor on what has happened between 2010 and 2021. Try to look at commodities as if that didn't exist. So you get rid of the anchoring effect that is well described in psychology um, because it doesn't help you. It doesn't give you any useful information about what is going on right now. You really have to be radical in your thinking or you're gonna be completely on the wrong side of history. Now, is the price of gas rational at the moment and has anything to do with the cost curve? No. But why is it the price? Because number one, if Vito, which sits here in Geneva and manages about 10% of you know, the oil market, call it the oil and gas market, or Trafigura, which sits here in Switzerland and manages about 6% of, or 5% of the uh, oil and gas market, the metals market and so on. Or Glencore, which manages, uh, sits here in Zug and so on. You know, these big trading houses, Mercuria, um, they at the moment need to deliver if they want to transport the gas molecule 
that is priced. Uh, you know, uh, the other day when they were sitting here in Geneva at the FT conference, they were saying, okay, on a 94, I quote now, I don't make it up, I quote him. You can look it up on my Twitter account, you'll find the quote, him explaining the Vital guy. On a 94 euro price, he needs to bring 80 euro margin. What does that mean for your audience? That means if you have a, a loading of say 100 million worth of oil that they need to deliver, that they need to ship, it means in the past they may needed 10 million, 5 million capital on their balance sheet. Now they need 80 million capital on the balance sheet. So a bit like in the financial crisis, the business has kind of changed overnight and it's a lot more capital intensive to the point where they, these uh, big trading houses were probably at the brink of bankruptcy. Now, that's a careful thing to say here for your audience, but I think it's not that off. You know, it was maybe a de facto kind of liquidity crisis for them, which they obviously very, very well managed and they knew how to address it, but it means their business shrinks. The capital requirement went up. It's exactly as when we go through the financial crisis for banks where they needed like five or seven and a half percent capital quota tier one, and now they need 15. So it changes your business. You, you lend less when you come and say, okay, no, no, they say, no, but you know, and we need this, and we need more, you know, mortgage, no, not 70%, only 50, right? And so on the, on the house price. And that's exactly what's going on in commodity right now. So they all need more capital to just do the same as they did three weeks ago. The market is in an emergency room. And I think your audience should know that. And that emergency room is not going to go away until sanctions go away. So now for your audience, when do sanctions go away? In my view, that's a view I personally have. But so far, you know, I said he will invade Russia and he did. And many people said, oh, you have no, no, no. So maybe, maybe our way of thinking and looking at things is, is, is maybe a little bit more creative than most. So my point is sanctions, in my view, cannot go away quickly. Why do I say that? Because Mr. Putin broke an unwritten law of international relations. And that is that you cannot threat with nuclear, call it a nuclear attack, um, even though you have that power, you just do not threat with it. Even in the times of Khrushchev, the Kennedy crisis in the 60s, uh, they actually didn't threaten each other with a nuclear attack. They were a crisis and he said, you know, uh, JFK demanded Khrushchev to, to remove uh, uh, those weapons from Cuba, uh, which then became the Cuba crisis, but it wasn't a threat, a direct of, I may do it. Now, if you go today on Russian TV, I don't understand Russian, but you know, we have a lot of translation these days and all sorts of stuff. You know, they literally say it on TV in their propaganda day in, day out. Putin goes out and says on the microphone, by the way, I'm happy. You know, if you don't, if you do this or that, I'm going to throw a nuke on you. So this, what I'm, 
whether he does or not is 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 not my topic here. I, I, I don't want to uh, also cause the wrong discussion here or fears. I think that's you know what he says and what he does two different things. Although he he did a lot of what he said, but let us not go in that rabbit hole. What I'm trying to say is he threatened the United States, the UK, France, the uh, you know call it the the three big when it comes to nuclear in the West. With um, a nuclear attack, he even threatens Poland, but they don't have nuclear weapons. As a, as a you know, he, he, I think he threatens all of us, and um, and so you cannot go back to business. I think what we need from here is a po we need a post-Putin time for sanctions to lift. I'm not sure that's going to be soon because somehow he can keep it together in his uh, corrupt system over there, and then two. We need checks and balances, or alternatively, kind of a dearmament of nuclear warheads of 7,500 nuclear warheads. I think that, that what I just said is going to be a non-starter, right? It's a very proud, uh, history-rich, uh, incredible nation, Russia. So I, I don't think they 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 would uh, allow a dearmament. But but at the same time, the West will say, well, if you don't want that, how can we make sure that not the, the next dictator comes and threatens us again? And maybe we can go in an accident. So I think we are in a, this is the overarching dilemma that we are in. And I don't see a solution anytime soon. And I think that's going to drive, uh, you know, commodities came into this overarching problem already with underinvestment, undersupply, under this. Every, every single one of them has its own problem. And then on the demand side, we go, uh, we have the net zero topic where we try to have much more metals and so on. So the demand side is actually for many commodities is going to explode. The supply side doesn't work. And now on top, we created this kind of overarching dilemma where we cannot sanction lift, um, in my view, I mean, maybe a politician kind of finds a way out and says, ah, let's let the world go back. To, but I think in the past that hasn't worked. The appeasement policy hasn't worked as with Hitler. So I, I don't think the politicians now are, you know, and let me put it this way. I think the motivation is now here not to appease anymore, but to resist. Um, on a European uh, level and hopefully in the in the US context. And if that is true, what I'm saying, then uh, that's the context of the of the commodities we're in. And that means um, uh, they, they, you know, it, it has all sorts of consequences for all sorts of them. And you have to go through each uh, uh, to understand. But this is why I think um, uh, when I tweet in this decade, Unless you understand commodities well enough, I think you will have a very hard time to navigate capital allocation. This is the context of it. And um, again, we can go again deeper and deeper on, on all of them, but, but I, I think for your audience, this is what one needs to understand. You know, I don't think gas prices can relax much because with this uncertainty that we have, it means that the price needs to of European gas, let's go back to gas, which is important to your Norwegian uh, audience, I think, has to stay high in order to incentivize the marginal LNG barrel, liquefied natural gas, that stuff that comes from far away, that is like kind of ship, the transport, it's like a pipe, you have to think, 
it brings it in from the US, right? Which, which, which has it, which is a net, net export of gas. Then brings it in from Qatar, which is a net export, and brings it in from Australia, which is an export. But these are the big three. And then we have some from Africa, Nigeria, and so on. Doesn't matter. But those, those compete to also bring it to Asia, which is called the 600 BCM, 650 BCM market. And that wants, by the way, to become a, you know, bigger market than the US, which is a 1,000 BCM per annum market, again, per, uh, billion cubic meter per year. So the Asians want to replace coal with gas, so they grow the gas. So, so, and they are also net exporter. They don't produce it, uh, you know, like Norway, uh, too much of it, but too little of it. So they, they all compete for the gas. So what needs to happen in the price finding? The European price needs to be above the Asian price significantly so to justify uh, a um, you know the rerouting and to for a decision making from say Australia. Okay, most of it comes from the US at the moment, which is a cheap route. But in the future, if we need to replace 150 BCM of Russian gas, that's so much that we need to replace a third at the moment, only 11 or 12% is LNG of that 500 BCM market. So, so we, we need to become so much bigger. Um, uh, so we need to keep that arm open, number one. Number two, we need to create additional terms. Number three, we need to probably curtail our, our consumption pattern. Because the, 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 the last part is obviously where we kind of supply and demand can meet again. Um, assuming that uh, a Russian gas, although flowing today, is a massive uncertainty in the future. That's why I argue and I promote and I try to help people to at least make some money on the, in the market when they have to pay all these extra bills on top, you know, to look at a company like Serica Energy, which is a UK gas play, which is a one-on-one -on -one, uh, beneficiary of that situation, I think. That shoulder season, meaning, you know, in the summer, the gas price is usually low because we don't consume it. We now fill up our storages for the winter season. Um, but I think that shoulder season is not going to be looking anything like the last 10 years. How should it? On that, you know, a supply and demand situation and you add the geopolitical backdrop on it and, uh, and you add you know, um, the technical aspects of the physical market, of the trafigures and vitals, put it all together, you know, and I think people are still in a group think. I'm shocked when I read these experts, you know, thinking about these things day in, day out, and then they have the price tag, and I look at it and think, so how is that going to get bring us the gas into Europe? You know, I think people really have to be a bit, uh, go the extra mile here and, and start to think about these things in a clear, what I call clear thoughts. And that's the backdrop we're in, and, and that backdrop is not going to change. How can you change? And, um, and, and then there is always this, you know, 10% that, you know, we like to think in probabilities too, sorry. Pixie, this is an interview. It's perfect. You have a, for those guys listening, we have a new guest joining the show, but I guess it, he, he or she is ready yeah. for the one she's, hour uh, trip. So. I picked her up on the street um, and she's, uh, she's, I think her brain is bigger than mine and she understands everything. I just asked her to wait a little bit. No, but the, the point is um, um, we... Uh, 
Isn't this just we, we think storm, in, right? sorry, when I finish that we think in probabilities now don't but yes. I don't want to uh, scare you audience like, like he's a fanatic no we think in probability trees all right and we always have scenarios but at the moment you you bet that we have a very high probability rating for what I just explained and 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 of course I pay attention to to other outcomes. Uh, and I think a peace agreement will take our gas price down immediately for a moment, but only to go back up as you saw it in the last three months, right? It's this roller coaster where it goes up, but on a very high level, right? Of course, gas prices come down on a peace agreement, everyone says, oh, now we're back to normal, only to find out three weeks later, nothing has changed. But, but isn't it also just to keep it simple for people that extreme action also often lead to extreme outcomes? So you had COVID, that's an extreme case, right? Everyone is locked at home, extreme, you know, volatility. And also a war in Europe is also a very extreme case. So you should expect extreme outcomes, long-term consequences, right? I would agree with that statement. And I would argue that... Europe, um, although they cannot admit it publicly, the politicians, when I say Europe, I mean von der Leyen, von der Leyen or uh, Schulz or, or Macron and so on. I mean, uh, how can they not work on complete energy independence from Russia? You know, you have to understand, my, my, my family background is actually cotton. Right? My father used to be, uh, this, I think, at some point, the second largest cotton trader in the world in the 80s. So I, I, you know, from as a baby already, commodities was a topic. So why do I say that? Because he imported, exported a lot of cotton from Russia. And that was so Soviet Union, I should say, former Soviet Union. And the former Soviet Union was the most reliable partner in commodities throughout the entire Cold War. Uh, was there a time of uncertain and so on? Yes, but there was never a breach of contract. Putin also broke that unwritten rule quickly. Now, if you go on my tweets, you'll find some of the history of Gazprom and its bad acting, especially in Eastern Europe, for Moldova, blackmailing Moldova, Ukraine, or this or that, and so on. So they played around with the gas as a weapon all the time, but not to the major clients. Germany, Italy, UK, uh, you know, other Eastern European countries, Austria being a major client and so on, the hub for, for Eastern Europe. Now they did. They did it 18 months ago. They didn't fill the European storage, which Gazprom has, which caused us to be to go low into with storage numbers into this crisis. And then they continued to play games and they always said A and they always did B except that we have data to see what they say and what they do. The classic, watch what they do, not what they say thing, right? And now on top, they threaten with it, right? Medvedev the other day, Medvedev, the uh, vice chairman of, of, of Gazprom, came out and more or less said, well, okay, you, you declare economic war on us, so well, why don't we do that on you too? So this is the world we're in, and, and you're absolutely right to summarize it, that we are in a tectonic shift of how we look at this world and it's at the globalization of it and how trade works and what I the other day tweeted and said, you know, we uh, we are in a world where the cheap trade, in my view, is over. Right? Are we going to trade with each other? Of course, we do in some form. I'm not so sure what Russia long term, but you know, at some point again, probably yes. But um, 
um, the short term while Putin is around it, but, you know, everyone wants to minimize that, not maximize it or keep it on. But uh, um, and self-sanctioning is a is a big deal uh, in what is going on right now in Europe too. So for for Europe, but um, but the point is, I think that um, global peak globalization thing that I would argue is definitely over in the commodities world. And um, there we have to be new trading routes to accommodate that market, and that's going to be a massive challenge in itself. And that always creates price inefficiency, no price discovery. That's actually, you know, the perfect ending because the conversation has gone so fast, but it's been very insightful. Just like the last thing I would like you to add on is that where can people get in touch and get this knowledge? Is it just like the perfect place is Twitter. He even created a small Twitter community inside Twitter. So it's the best way for people to get in touch is to use Twitter or do you have any other preferred, you know, media? Well, I like to read. Um, I like, I, I, on everything, we try to find books that we're interesting and I'm happy to, to share with your audience, you know, later on in your podcast, we can share some titles of books that we think that are useful Maybe one I show, which very few people will know, but, um, you know, I think it's highly relevant, right? So there is a guy called Vaslav Smil. And so maybe that's what people like to read. Energy transitions, right. And then, yes, please follow us on Twitter. And I think try to um, really... Um, uh, if commodities interest you, there has never been a better time to read up on them and and um, and, and reach out to us. We, we we share ideas that we have to to and, you know learn more about them. And um, and I think if you follow us on Twitter, you we are very open minded when it comes to sharing. I think this is a world where swarm intelligence is kind of uh, what what keeps you out of trouble. And that's why I like to share my ideas. And then if someone comes and says, oh, you're so silly, you didn't see that. That's kind of where we can help each other, right? And Definitely. I can just say from my behalf, I mean, I learned so much from re reading reports and also just following you on Twitter. So I definitely think that's a very good place to start. So maybe just say that I have many more questions, but I want to save that for part two in the future. So, I mean... I just want to thank you for your time and that it was a delightful uh, thing to have you on finally. Thanks a lot for having me. This is the first time. Obviously, we're a small shop, and, but hopefully we have more of those in the future. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me. If you like this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.